Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. There's always a real kind of deep unease, I think, among among prison officers if they fear that, you know, one of their own has somehow compromised the system because it can compromise them personally, which puts them under huge pressure, I think. She was in the Mountjoy complex at the time working as, as a, a prison officer and would have known him from her own part of town, but she was stopped by the guards in her car with him while he was unlawfully at large. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's a life alien to many, but for prisoners, the daily grind of jail time is a heady mix of boredom, survival and sometimes opportunism. Smuggled contraband brings power. Drugs and alcohol are a way to escape the four walls. And for many, staff and workers are seen as a means to an end. Today, I'm talking with Sunday World journalist Eamon Dillon about the strange world of prison and how the close proximity of staff and inmates can sometimes lead to trouble. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, welcome back yourself from your little sojourns over the summer. Why do I read that Scott Capper, a gangland enforcer, a right-hand man of the guy we call Mr. Flashy, is getting in trouble in prison after a booze-up? A, how do they get the booze? And, you know, he's also been, he's among a number of prisons, prisoners who are suspected of having phones. How do they get this stuff in? How in a prison can you have a piss-up? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean... A lot of these guys, as we've discussed before in, in, in various guises, I mean, when they go behind bars, they don't stop being what they are or who they are. Um, they, they're still, a lot of them, like Scott Capper, you, you know, they're living the lifestyle. They're not one of these people who've been locked up because, you know, they made a one-off mistake getting drunk and driving the car into, into a, a school bus or something. I mean, these, these are people who've kind of picked the life, you know, they're living the life of the, the, of the professional criminal. So when you're locking them up, I mean, they're still mm-hmm. going to be looking at, you know, ways of breaking the rules or getting around it. And and I suppose it's, it's much a diversion. It's something to do. I mean, if you're not going to be doing your environmental science degree the way Christy Kinahan Sr. did, you need to be doing something else to occupy your mind. So looking for ways to beat the system, it's as much a game uh, to play as anything else. It's something to do. And then there's the happy bonus that you end up getting to have a, a little drinking session as your reward, your prize for it. But like in terms of how it gets in, I mean, we know over the years been, there's been, you know, various different methods like through, you know, people being coerced to smuggle stuff in on behalf of gangs and, and, and visitors being coerced or encouraged or bribed or whatever to bring stuff in. And, you know, there's the rare occasions then of prison staff who are inveigled into inappropriate relationships and, and you know, in, in various guises like, you know, they're sucked in into uh, doing the bidding of some of these guys and, and think they're, they're helping out. There's others who are simply intimidated, um, you know, that they're, they're identified as being weak or, you know, a possible weak link in the, in the system. 
and they're singled out. And again, you're talking about, you know, people who have got nothing else to do except focus on somehow getting contraband into the prison. I mean, it gives you a huge amount of power inside. So, I mean, it's a it's a it's a big thing to be able to, you know, have your own mm. line of access to the outside world, whether it's phones, drinks, drugs or whatever it is that you're you're looking to get in. I mean, it's an important it's an important thing to do if you want to keep your your you know somewhere your level on the pecking order in the criminal underworld. Now, Copper is uh, got a bit messy on the the drink, the prison hooch or whatever it was he had, and he um he's about he's being disciplined at the moment or certainly facing disciplinary proceedings in Mount Joy because he became violent to the officers uh, following the session. So. Look, it must be a really strange environment to work in. We've spoken before about, uh, you know, what it's like to be in prison, how boring the day can be or otherwise how they'll go to the gym and, you know, whatever. But to work in a prison must be a very strange environment. I've always thought it must be in a really it must be a really, really hard job because you're there. It's your workplace. But all the prisoners, it's almost like their home. And, uh, you know, you have the two colliding and surely to get a little bit of respect and for, to make life easier for you in your day job, you have to get on okay with them. And yet there have to be very strict protocols in how well you'd get on with them. Yeah, I, I guess there's an intensity to some people's lives in prison that you wouldn't have on the outside. The fact that you're incarcerated and you can't go anywhere and there isn't the usual I guess, uh, avenues for blowing off steam or living your life in, in a normal way. So there's going to be all that sort of element of frustration and, and I, you know, which will bring this whole kind of focus then on, on whatever part of their life, you know, whether somebody takes up the guitar or banjo or whether it's smuggling or, 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 or whatever it is. So, I mean, you know, and, and that's that's going to wear off, I think, to some extent on 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 some of the the officers. I know over the years, like like it's it's it, it, like some of the cases that I mean over the years that we've reported on. I mean, you can count pretty much on, you know, certainly one hand, maybe the second hand, one or two fingers. Like, I mean, there isn't that many cases where you know that have actually come to court where you know somebody connected with you know not necessarily in the Irish prison service, but even outside agencies or or individuals, you know, who are brought in to do a job or whatever, in some cases that, you know, they've, they've for whatever reason, become involved in either, you know, a relationship, a criminal relationship with a gangster, or then we've, we've also had cases as well of people getting involved in a romantic relationship with prisoners, which is, I, I suppose, something that, it, that there's, there's, I'm sure there's a few PhDs being written about this, like, you know, what attracts you know, a man or a woman to someone who's locked up. And I guess it comes back to that, you know, intensity of, of someone's living, their, their life in a way becomes, you know, more laser focused. So, you know, it might be very uh, charming to some extent to be suddenly the focus of, of, of a young man or a young woman, you know, who they have nothing else really to, to, to kind of uh, to think about or, or to try and engage. And you become that target. And, you know, and for some people, they might find that just you know too beguiling, mm. I suppose, in a sense to to turn it down and against what should be their better judgment, allow themselves to become romantically involved, and and that has happened as we've seen. Yeah, because look, everybody, be they locked up or working in the prisons, are humans, of course, and and relationships can develop in all sorts of ways. Um, because we're human, and many people are in relationships they shouldn't be, and they just they fall into them, but. 
you know, you read a lot about in the States and in particular in Australia there at the moment. Um, uh, and often in the UK, you see these cases where people working in prisons end up either married to prisoners or they're found to be having relationships. In the US at the moment, there's a big investigation because uh, a member of a prison staff actually escaped a prisoner that she was uh, having a relationship with. We've had nothing as dramatic here in Ireland, have we? Boring old Ireland, yeah, eh? Well, not quite, but I mean, yeah, there, there's other ones in the States as well. There was um, a, a journalist from Bloomberg ended up falling in love with, uh, I think, Martin Screeley, who was the, if you remember, he was the guy who's done for fraud, for price gouging, for um, HIV medicine, the whole lot. And she left up her 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 very good job as a financial journalist um, to, to go with him. And and she's not the only one. I think there was another there was another American journalist in her in her fifties who who ended up marrying a man who had been jailed on a I think on a murder charge in connection with a murder charge, uh, twenty years her junior. And I think they, they've been in a, in a relationship. And I think they, it, it's about that intensity. I think you know, I suppose you have somebody who's inside and they've, they've, there's no other complications going on with their life. They don't have to worry about what time to pick up the kids from school or having to get here or there because, uh, you know, uh, an awful lot of their choices are made for them, like in terms of even, you know, when they when they get to go to bed and when they get to get up and, you know, what's going to be on the menu today isn't really, you know, there, there isn't really a whole lot to, to think about. So I think that's what it, it comes in there. I mean, we've certainly had it in Ireland in terms of romance. Um, like we know that the likes of Joe O'Reilly gets, you know, uh, you know, who's serving life or killing his wife, Rachel Callaly, you know, all those years ago, I think he's, what, 15 years in prison now. He's still a popular uh, focus of, of people writing letters to lifers. And, this, you know, there's some some pretty horrific characters in there who seem to get these the, these letters from, from mostly women, to be honest with you, you know, writing into them. I mean, there was reports that the, the Scissor Sisters, Linda and, and Charlotte Mulhall, were also the subject of a certain amount of correspondence from from men when when they went in to do their time. I mean, Charlotte is still serving her time, where uh, and Linda, who's convicted of you know a lesser charge, Charlotte's doing uh, life for murder, and Linda was uh, convicted of a lesser charge, and she's since out, and she's now actually. Uh, I mean, we did. I think the Sunday where we did a story it was in 2017, living living down in County Kildare. Um, and that she was still linked to a retired, uh, or you know, a former prison guard um, that that she had met while he he was serving time. Now there was no suggestion that there was necessarily a relationship going on while they were in prison, but um, after after uh, he left the prison service, like you know, she was in contact with him again after she she was released from jail. So. You know, like, you know, these kind of strange love stories, I guess, do happen. So what are the rules exactly? And I'm sure they're pretty rigid as regards staff and people coming in and out of prisons, having relationships with prisoners. And are people who are kind of working uh, in and with the prison service, are they given kind of a little bit of a steerage as regards how to put up boundaries or, you know, where to do that? I mean, look, there, there, there's strict rules in, in terms of, you know, inappropriate relationships. And, you know, and a lot of it is, I would imagine, your own colleagues helping to keep people on the straight and narrow because sometimes can people can just simply think they're doing someone, a, you know, a small favour, like dropping them down a book, uh, you know, outside of, the, you know, the normal times. And they'll say, look, you know, somebody's just trying to suck you in to, to doing favours for them and, you know, or, or even get to the point to, 
to try and compromise a member of staff. And I mean, you know, it would be to use leverage. It would be, you know, it's a way of, of some of the, you know, more manipulative prisoners to get their own way of, of doing things. And I mean, you know, you know and, and like, and it can't be understated, like how manipulative, you know, a certain, you know, a certain category of prisoner are, like, you know, like apart from, you know, the serious gangland uh, criminals, I mean, you, ha- you have people in there who are quite deranged. I mean, I, the, the, um, I mean there's a, d- a double killer uh, who, who murdered the Blaine brothers. He's serving time for that. And he, he, when he was doing a previous system, he was faking medical letters and putting them on the door of a fellow prisoner, um, basically trying to see if he could get him to kill himself. So, I mean, I mean that's one form of manip- manipulation. And then you have... I, I don't know if you remember the case of um, Michael Murray, who's serving, uh, I think, 15 years for, for basically kidnapping a, a woman and her small child, drugging her, raping her, leaving the child on the street. And he ended up um, uh, getting a phone smuggled into him, which he used then to put his victim's details up on, you know, escort websites and, you know, to harass her, like, you know, remotely and sent death threats to, to I think, two lawyers, you know, and you know, was involved in, I think, also, I think, rang a bomb hoax in somewhere as well. And it turns out then that it was it was another solicitor, Joanne Kangley, had actually smuggled this uh, mobile phone into him. And I remember, like, we, we covered at, at, at the time, um, I think he was actually, the, the suggestion was, uh, you, you know, it was, it was in one of these meetings where, they can meet their, their their clients and quite necessarily they do it privately. You know, they're not overseen because there could be sensitive material. They don't want to necessarily have stuff leaked out that might get to the guards, which they're entitled to that in, in fairness. Um, but she obviously brought in a phone, which he then used in such a horrific way. And he got an additional 19, he got a 19 year sentence for that campaign of harassment that he did. But like just the level of, of like twisted manipulation on his part. And, and this is a guy who's not... I mean, he's a dangerous man, but like he's not a gangland criminal, despite, you know, he, he was making threats that, oh, he had a, you know, he had a team of foreign criminals that were going to kidnap somebody and abduct them and, and threaten their children and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, so it kind of shows you like, there's a good reason why you need to step back and not necessarily, you know, have even a normal relationship, you know, with, with people like that, that you can't risk mm. being sucked in. And even if it's a simple thing of, you know, supplying them with an extra biro or something it's all you know the beginning of a, a slippery slope and you know some of them have a really you know clever instinctual kind of psychology going on and they're able to to get people to do what they want i have to say i'd be so bad at the job it would be unbelievable i really will never i just don't ever want the irish prison service to employ me even if i come begging uh i i just wouldn't be able to to i don't know maybe it's just because you but maybe get used to it i don't know but February of this year, um, the uh, prison service is began to investigate a situation that there was a, a, a female who was working within the prison service was on holiday with another female and they one became aware of certain messaging that was going on uh, with an inmate on this holiday. And um, so... We can't talk too much about this and it is under investigation as far as we know. But 
in a situation like that, you have, say, a female working in the prison within the prison service and they're having these sort of intimate text relationships. So there's some point that they have to hand over their number or they have to get, you know, awareness of a phone being in the in the possession of the prisoner and that they have a phone that they're using. Do you think that it's always a situation that the individual who's going in and out of the prison are working within the services in whatever way is being manipulated? Are they always being manipulated or does love actually blossom um, behind the walls of a prison in the same way as it does across the the rest of the world? That would be the romantic view, Nicola. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) going to share... That's why I'm a journalist, for God's sake. Well, I mean, it certainly might be um, unrequited love to some extent, or I'm sure somebody could fake it long enough if, you know, you're only meeting them when you're out of your cell for 20 minutes a day. I mean, it does, it it beggars belief, uh, to be honest, sometimes. I mean, like there was a story we did, I think it was 2008 at this stage now, and it was a a young female officer. I think we named her and photographed her at the time. Um, And she was 23 and she'd met um, a, a chap who was in for... I think, a, you know, a violent crime, but was serving a short sentence at that stage. Um, and he, he'd he been out on TR and he'd failed to come back. And she, he, she was in the Mountjoy complex at the time working as, as a, a, a prison officer and would have known him from her own part of town. But she was stopped by the guards in her car with him in his car while he was unlawfully at large. Which, you know, brings into question, I suppose, to some extent, you know, her, her judgment there. Now, her, her, I think she said something along the lines as far as she knew at the time he, he was he was out normally and she was only giving him a lift to the shops. And, uh, you know, as part of the story, you know, we, I contacted her and uh, kind of asked her, like, you know, and she said, look, yeah, I'll ring you back. And then, uh, you know, proceeded to have a conversation about it. And suddenly we were joined by a third person, you know, and it was, suddenly became a conference call. And it was her friend who was actually ringing from Mount Joy at the time. Uh, as I discovered then, it wasn't like on an official phone, so it was had to be, a, 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 you know, a smuggled mobile phone. And that was kind of, you know, bizarre, a, a really bizarre story I felt in that, like, the woman in question, like, didn't, you know, didn't seem to feel that there was anything wrong in, in you know, in what was going on. I mean, she since left the prison service. I think she, she would hold, had was close to leaving or had already left by the time the Sunday World did the story. But again, it just shows you, like, you know, I mean, there was only, there was an age, of, like at that stage, I think she was 23, he was 19. So there was a four-year age gap. But, uh, you know, it just, well, I suppose maybe to be, to give it the benefit of the doubt from the, the Nicola Talent's uh school of romance novels that in this case it was a case of of love blossoming behind bars despite everything now he subsequently did get a much longer sentence for an even more violent crime in the meantime just to sorry finish off on an unromantic note and bring you back to reality no no i'm back i'm back with a bang and i'm putting back on my crime journalist hat and i'm going to suggest that if i was an inmate in prison see even the, the voice gets tougher did you notice that Are you noticing no, you, you always scare me, Nicholas. So I'll just, it's, it's hard to tell. <laughs> but I mean, if you were an inmate in prison, what a thing to have is somebody with a romantic interest in you that you can manipulate to do whatever you want, to get whatever you want in, to get whatever notes you want out, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is absolutely, it is a quite a dangerous environment maybe for somebody working within the system who doesn't have 
sort of strength of character or who has some sort of vulnerabilities, you know, and we have seen that um, in the past before, wasn't there a, a, a woman working in the prison services who was an artist and uh, she was helping some of the prisoners with those skills and was found to be in a relationship with a very serious criminal altogether when she was she was out. Yeah, and, you know, and she's not alone. I mean, we, we did one in, I think it was, it was a good few years back and it was actually a guy who was serving life for strangling his girlfriend in a car park as he kissed her. And yet he found love with somebody who knew exactly who, who he was. She was working in a kind of a, an attached office in a, a kind of a, an alternative sort of program. And he was out on, on, on day release from the Mountjoy training unit as it was at the time. And, for, you know, we photographed them, you know, giving each other hugs, going for lunch together, meeting up at the bus stop. And he was going back into his city centre flat then in Mountjoy for the evening. And I think he, he was, like we wrote at the time, like he was actually getting paid for his involvement in kind of diverting youth from crime. He was getting, I think he was on 600 quid a week. Plus he was getting his food and board then at the, at the I suppose, at the expense of the taxpayer. While in the meantime, this this lady who I think she, she had been, she had a couple of kids from a previous marriage, had found love with this, uh, with a man serving time for strangling his girlfriend. So it, it makes you wonder, to be honest, it really does. Is it always is it always the women who are the vulnerable ones, or are you know is there um, is there male sort of workers within the prison service as well that we have seen get uh, you know do they do they put many males into the the DOCA centre working or do they keep the staffing in there largely female? They, they would, I think the men would have to be far more careful in terms of how they're being they're perceived to be doing their job, and there's obviously you. you Try not to be working with anyone alone, that you make sure you have, you know, a female member of staff with you or somebody who knows what you're doing or, or that you stay where there's cameras, all that sort of thing. And I mean, that, that would take a certain amount of, you know, a certain amount of common sense, I guess, you know. But I mean, we do, as we mentioned earlier, like, you know, I mean, Linda Mulhall certainly formed an, an attachment with, uh, with, with, with a man who had worked in, in the prison where she had been. So, I mean, it obviously does happen, you know, it obviously, I'm sure it does happen both ways. I'm sure we don't get to hear about all of the relationships that don't necessarily become fulfilled, so to speak, or, you know, don't come to attention that, you know, people maybe draw back or get a bit of common sense or <clears throat> somebody's moved or transferred or voluntarily goes somewhere else, like just to, before it gets out of hand, before they lose their job or they get moved to a different prison or whatever, like as a prisoner, like, you know, so, I mean, we did another story, I remember, years ago on, um, again, it was an older woman who, who was, well, when I say older, I mean, she was older than the prisoner involved. Uh, he was a, a guy who was serving. What age is older in your head, by the uh, way? No, when I say older, older than the prisoner. I mean, everyone's much younger than me now, so I can't. I, I, yeah, but no, 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 no. Well, I mean, it's usually, it's, it's what is <laughs> what it, divide is by old? two and add seven, like I think is the rule of thumb. Well, you know I can't do any maths, for God's sake. Divide by two and add seven. And yeah, Divide what by two? Your age, um, and then add seven, and then... Oh, my age, divide that's, by two that's and the add youngest, seven. That's the youngest person uh, you're supposed to be able to date yeah. without it being dodgy, so to speak. <laughs> but anyway, all I'll suggest is that you, 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 you don't, don't meet up with somebody who's doing kind of his second, uh, his second stretch for, you know, a violent rape, which happens with, you know, a, a member of a teaching staff who are going in 
Um, and we actually photographed them together coming out of a, a supermarket after she'd been suspended. Well, she wasn't suspended by the, the teaching um, people. She wasn't suspended by the, the educational authority that had hired her, but the, basically her, her security pass for the prison was, was withdrawn because you can't really have people who are... Who are in relationship with, you know, uh, you know, former inmates of the same prison or even any prison. I mean, as, uh, just the same way as, uh, you know, a former prisoner can't necessarily go in and visit. I mean, d- the rule is that a former prisoner can't go in and visit his mates after he's got out. He can't come back and go in and chat to his old cellmate or whoever else. I think there's, there's very specific rules about, you know, if, if it's a spouse or, or um, you know, close family member, but they certainly can't go in uh, visiting their old pals for, you know, for good, for good reason. I mean, it's as much to protect the the former inmate coming in in case they're they've been uh, coerced into bringing something in or bringing messages in or whatever. So it's I think it's a way of safeguarding everybody in that regard. So so what about relationships between prisoners? Look, I I, I think it's something that you kind of you see about in in you know particularly in American comedies and you know American movies that touch on on, on prison and suggest that you know uh, a lot of male-to-male sex is rampant and often in a, in a dominant way and people taking certain roles. And I, I think it's overstated in the Irish prison system. And it is something that I've, you know, spoken to sources. And there, there would be a small element that might offer services for payment, so to speak. But that that's among the males. But, I mean, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there are, um, you know, between similarly orientated prisoners uh, relationships would form, but I mean, if they're, if but it would be against the rules. And I mean, if and if it was discovered that two inmates were having, you know, a sexual relationship or an inappropriate relationship, they would split them up and move them to different parts of the prison or to different prisons. And it's again, it's to it's to protect them possibly from being manipulated by, you know, what they perceive as as a loving partner or or you know, or, or even if the discovery of their relationship by other prisoners put them at, puts them at risk, whatever. So it's just, it just you know, it's like. You know, it's, it's it's leverage that could be used against them. So it's not something that's allowed or, or necessarily <laughs> encouraged. And that's all I'm going to say, I think, on this issue. So by and large, the prison is a place, you know, it's a place where people live, where they feel all sorts of emotions. And sometimes perhaps love is one of them or perhaps... Uh, you know, that is just a a way of manipulating people. But one way or another, relationships aren't allowed. And if somebody is coming out of prison, if somebody has served their time, I was asking you about this, if somebody has served their time, okay, and they come out of prison and they find then a prison officer that they are male or female, that they have want to, to create a romantic bond with, does that officer then have to uh, suspend their services, or is that allowed? I, I think any any kind of any issue that brings, you know, uh, somebody who's in contact with prisoners or is involved on the operational side of it, any issue that would bring, you know, would would cause security questions to be raised, I think would be, would be looked at, and you know, in some cases you know, something might be, you know, deemed inappropriate. In other cases, it mightn't. You know, I think it depends on on the type of relationship and, you know, and if there's any kind of, you know, familial connection or 
if there's some other reason. I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a, a flat out rule, but I, again, I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's going to really, it's, it's not really going to happen for someone. I think if, if there is security risk, I mean, it's pretty much your security pass gets revoked and there's a limited amount of duties then that you can continue to carry out. So I think it would probably put most, most people working in the prison service, it would put their, 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 their career at risk at the very least if, if they were in a relationship with a, with a former prisoner, particularly if it was somebody that they had in contact with before, you know, while they were in prison. <clears throat> I mean, perhaps like, you know, if, if you meet somebody, you know, who would serve time in the UK, and it, it, I'm sure that's different, but I think, I think it, would, it would be on a, a kind of a case-by-case basis and, and whether or not there's any kind of operational risk rather than a hard, fast rule about who you can who you can date. Well, it sounds to me as if uh, within the system, the best and, and obviously the majority of people working there leave their hearts at the door and engage the brain while at work. Yeah, I think you need to. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's, not, it's more than... I mean, I mean, there's so many other professions where you, you have to keep a professional distance. I mean, there's a certain amount of it as a journalist, like, you know, when you're you're talking to people who have, you know, serious, you know, sob stories and you might feel like, Jesus, this person really needs a hug. I mean, and that, that's at the very basic human level. And it's it'd be totally inappropriate to do something like that. I mean, you don't know how anyone's going to react to something like that. So, I mean, it's absolutely, it's a no-go area. And I mean, I'm sure it's the same for every solicitor out there, every kind of counsellor. I mean... You know, it's just it's something that you can't. It's just something that you have to be professional about, and that if you suddenly, you know, feel feel yourself developing feel, you know feelings for someone you've 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 met in a in a professional sense, it's probably something you're you're, you're best to leave alone unless you you can you can find some way of maintaining your integrity and still you know eventually down the line perhaps you know contact the person or if they contact you. But I don't think. You know, I, I think it's the same in any in in any job. <clears throat> I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's different in a way, I guess. That the other kind of relationship that goes on is, you know, is the serious uh, gangsters who are trying to find somebody to bring stuff in. I mean, we know that Thomas Hinchin at one stage uh, had a, a nice little supply line into D Wing in Mount Joy a number of years ago through, uh, uh, you know, a pretty egregious corrupt prison officer at the time. Who, who who suffered? You know, sorry, who who was sentenced to quite a serious stretch behind bars. Dylan O'Brien, he, he's from Kinsilla, in Dublin, and he he was bringing stuff in to Thomas Hinchin, who we know, you know, was part of the the D twenty two gang, you know, and it was controlling, I think, a lot of the the heroin trade in in the prison at the time, um, and that. O'Brien ended up bringing in drugs, drink, mobile phones, all of this, um, and he, he got a serious sentence. <clears throat> And he, he was, you know, he, he ended up in prison himself and had to lead quite a, a kind of restricted sort of regime in there. Um, obviously, he couldn't mix with other prisoners because of his old job, um, you know, and even even the fact that he'd been linked with, you know, a, a prisoner who was involved in serious feuding, you know, so he, he had a number of, you know, risk factors. Uh, and, and that all that, that came up in his appeal, which it turned out then, you know, he lost and that the, the appeal judge said, look, he, he could have actually got a, a far higher sentence for the kind of living this double life and you know breaching breaching the trust. I mean that that was probably among the worst of them that you know that I remember. Um, you know partly because of the you know the, the serious nature, and like and and it would have started to some extent through his own cocaine addiction. I remember it was in court. It came out and he was using a gym, um, and he met some he met some people connected to the gang in this gym and through his drug use. And then lo and behold, he was he was suckered into it, or he was willingly went into it. You know, presumably getting. You know, getting what he got for for bringing the stuff in, or maybe he felt like he was part of the gang, 
Um, and, you know, this, this kind of idea of being a double agent was somehow providing some excitement in, in his life. But I mean, like he paid for that in his career, in, in you know, in, in terms of obviously that was it. And he ended up being one of the one of the clients. In 2010, another prison officer uh, was jailed at Thomas Curry, who was 52 years old and had kind of come towards the end of his own career. He was heading into uh, the last few years before his retirement. He got a seven year sentence pretty much for the same sort of stuff, bringing in tablets and drugs and uh, all the rest of it. He said he'd done it a couple of times a year and been paid 50 to 100 quid ago, uh, very high risk activity. Yeah, and I mean, and it was quite a collection. Like, it, I mean, the guards arrested him on the way in. They obviously had good information. I mean, <clears throat> there was stuff, I think it was like 900, just reading back through the, through the case, 900 euro worth of cannabis, uh, cocaine worth 600 uh, euro, 365 uh, Alprazolam tablets, 145 diazepam, 31 mobile phones, 34 chargers, seven SIM cards, 22 Bluetooth headsets, 7-up bottle with 2 litres of alcohol, 94 sets of razor blades, 4 batteries, 4 earphones, 2 pen knives and a screwdriver. So, I mean, it's like he'd gone shopping to Lidl and loaded up the, the shopping trolley was going in. I mean, like I knew um, people who would have been colleagues and they were they were furious, like, you know, because of the, I think, you know, the risk that it puts other, you know, other um, prison officers under that if one of their own is somehow subverting the system, that, you know, I mean, you know, th- th- there's a real fear then. What about if somebody is going to be targeted, then they could, f- could they possibly find out personal details, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, there's always a real kind of deep unease, I think, among among prison officers if they fear that, you know, one of their own has somehow compromised the system because it can compromise them personally, which puts them under huge, you know, it would put you under, you know, a, a bit of mental pressure, I think, you know, if, if you feel that, you, someone doesn't necessarily have your back. I mean, he he provide he claimed then that there was an element of, of coercion in it, and that he, while he had a fear of getting caught, he was also worried about the people he was dealing with, and obviously had gone too far to get out of it, and 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 couldn't turn back at that stage. But also, Eamon, it's the same probably in in every profession and in our own, you know. And I can totally see that from the point of view of prison officers. And the same is probably the case for somebody who compromises themselves in a relationship that, you know, you're kind of seeing it's it's showing a weakness from the group. And, you know, it's the same if journalists do bad things or things they shouldn't do. It's kind of like that sense that everybody, oh, I always knew you were like that. You're all like that or whatever. And it'd be the same with the prison officers. And I can totally understand that one steps out of line and everybody feels more vulnerable especially in the environment they're working in. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, there's been two high-profile cases over the years of, of journalists who turned out to be active paedophiles. So, you know, <laughs> but I, I mean, but that's, I mean, that's something that we always, I think, take, you know, with an open mind that, you know, because one or two, every so often prison officers are, are caught smuggling or, are, you know, turn out to be corrupt or bent or stupid or whatever, doesn't mean they all are. The fact that people are caught shows to some extent that the, the system actually works, which I think, you know, it's something that I think big institutions like with a lot of staff need to realize that, you know, every so often, you know, you're not necessarily going to get people who've gone into that profession, whether it's journalism or whether it's the prison service or the guards for the right reasons or at some point in their during their career, for whatever reason, then, you know, decide to start using their position of trust to do something else. And I mean, and, and that's just, unfortunately, that's life and it's human nature. I think, you know, I think it's a bit different. Like, I mean, journalism, 
you can argue like the position of trust we're in, you know, isn't as isn't as serious. Uh, you know, but somebody in, in the kind of the operational end of, you know, the guards or the army or the prison service, you know, it can be life threatening. You know, it can be immediately life threatening. I mean, and certainly, I mean, I mean, you can even look at like, you know, on an international level. I mean, if you look at stuff now about, you know, on social media, but, you know, figures in, in, in the international press corps being accused of being puppets for, you know, Trump or Putin or Biden or whatever, and or you know, or or, or people admitting that they received payments from, you know, a, a Chinese government PR agency, which does happen, and some people somehow doesn't think that this this compromises them as a journalist, unbelievably so. But like, you know, but it's it's just it's human life that you know there's stupidity out there. There's people who, who think of the wrong part of their brain sometimes. Um, and it's not always it's not always easy for some people to stay on the straight and narrow. And then when you add in the mix that you're you're dealing with people who are who've already shown their inability to always use the right part of their brain and to stay on the straight and narrow, you're gonna you're gonna double that risk. Well, I think we can finish this deep philosophical conversation we've been having today with the caveat that there is good and bad everywhere. <laughs> so, Eamon Dillon. One of the good guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. Thanks again. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>